Today, my, uh, my message is called, He Can't Be Serious. Our text is from Isaiah chapter 9. But I want to start with a passage from Hebrews. Hebrews 12, verse 28 and 29 says this. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Sovereign Father, let my words be true this morning. Let the sermon be glorifying to you. God, would you magnify your gospel and your kingdom and your promises in this place today? We confess that we are slow to believe. Father, would you grace us with faith that pleases you? We confess that we are too often Scrooges who fail to rejoice as much as you say we should. Would you fill us with joy? Make us cheerful hearts. Search us and know us by your word now for Christ's sake. Amen. So Isaiah prophesied and lived some 700 years before Christ's birth. And among other things, he prophesied that the Messiah would bring judgment unto truth, he would be a light to the nations, and he would take away the sin of the sins of his people. He also prophesied that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, which is incredible to me because where did that come from? God. Um, so as we get into Isaiah 9 today, I want you to pay close attention to what he actually says and, and what he actually described some 700 years before Christ's birth. And if you do, you might be tempted to think he can't be serious. If you pay close attention to what Isaiah is saying, you might be tempted to think this guy has got to be joking. But we are Christians, and that means we confess Jesus is Lord, and that means we confess Jesus is Lord of our reasoning. And this kind of logical, eyes-wide-open faith in Jesus enables us to read the words of God via Isaiah and actually believe it all to be true. Part of Isaiah's prophecy had to do with events that would take place in his own lifetime. Uh, for example, he foretold of an Assyrian invasion that would ravish the land. He, he says these prophecies that were fulfilled in his lifetime, that were fulfilled actually relatively quickly, were to prove his authenticity as a prophet. They were to show how accurate of a prophet he was. And because he, he prophesied those things because he knew his hearers were obstinate, he knew his hearers had stiff necks. He actually said, necks of iron sinew. They were stiff-necked. They were obstinate. They, they were slow to believe. And so he prophesied these true things that took place in his own lifetime to confirm that he was a, he was a true prophet. This morning, if you start to feel that iron sinew begin to stiffen your neck as we go th through some of these writings... Remember that Isaiah was serious. Uh, we must believe that the writer was either confused or lying or correct. When we, when we read these words, we have to believe that either Isaiah was confused about what he was saying or seeing, he was lying to us, it was a con job, or he was actually correct. If you're on the fence at this point, I want you to suspend judgment until we get to the end. Until, until we get to the end of the text, until you see a bigger chunk of the story. J.R.R. Tolkien, the author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, was asked once if he believed that Middle Earth was real. And he quipped, one hopes... I want us to hear these glorious prophecies and ask ourselves this Advent season this question. When shall these things be? 
think of it as if you were reading them for the first time. If you were Zechariah and Elizabeth, if you're the parents of John the Baptist, so you're, you have a son and you're reading Isaiah, you're asking yourself, when shall these things be? Read it as if we were Mary and Joseph or Simeon in the temple. Read it as if we were good Jewish shepherds on a hillside or if we were wise men from Orient far. And ask ourselves, when shall these things be? You may not believe that Tolkien's vision of Middle Earth or Lewis's vision of Narnia are real. You may not believe that Isaiah's vision of his future world is real. But if you pay close attention to his words, you know, if you know the narrative and the promises, you are going to hope that it is real. You are going to hope that it is true. At the very least. So one of the things I want this sermon to accomplish is to show you that Isaiah's prophecies, and specifically in chapter 9, where we're going to mainly be, are about so much more than just the actual birth of Christ. It's about so much more than just a baby being born and that's it. There's, there's more here than just a foretelling of a physical birth of the Prince of Peace. This is the foretelling of a recreation. This is Isaiah foretelling a, of a reordering that is coming, of a new kingdom of a new creation. A new kingdom of a new creation. Isaiah sees glory coming down in the face of Jesus. And and yet such glory that it radiates like the light of the sun upon the earth. What I mean is, try and imagine the light, the, the sun rising and just shining. You know, you have a window, a house with windows that face east. Sun rises in the morning and you say, oh, that's funny. The sun is just shining, you, you know, in this one spot on the window. You know, you have a whole pane glass windows, massive, if that was all windows, and the sun is shining like a basketball down on one spot on the floor. You know, no, that's not the sunlight. Isaiah sees glory in the face of Jesus like he sees the sun. It shines everywhere. It shines a light on everything. It can't be contained. It cannot be confined. So on that note, let's get to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to start with Verses 1 through 5. This is the word of the Lord. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every, brute, every boot of the tramping warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Verse 6, which we haven't read yet, verse 6 says, For unto us. For unto us. Because Christ came for his people, unto us, unto you. Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah's words are to us. For unto us a child is born. They are to God's people, to the true Israel, that is the church, to his bride. And from the start of this text, we need to keep that in mind, that Isaiah is talking to us and he says to us gloom is on a non-stop flight to elimination death 
is dying. There will be no gloom. Death is dying. The people have seen a great light. On them, a light has shone. Paul in Ephesians 5.8 says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, singing and prophesying about Jesus in Luke 179, quotes this verse in Isaiah, because Christ is the light that conquers all darkness. You'll hear more about that next week as we get into the songs of Mary and Isaiah and Simeon. But Zechariah, he comes back to this verse in Isaiah. He comes back here and and he's pointing us to this and he's saying, this is now. This is fulfilled. He's tying it. He's nailing it down to something historically concrete and he's saying, it is fulfilled. It is now. Christ the light has come to conquer multiplied the nations and increased its joy. So we're talking about growth. We're talking about light, not consigned to one. We're not talking about light that's shining in one little corner of your window on a bright sunny day. We're talking about light that is not constrained. It is not consigned to one people, people group, one nation, one ethnicity. We're not talking about light for Jewish people only. We're talking about light for the world. Isaiah sees multiplication and he sees fruitful harvest and the ensuing celebration feast. You can check out Isaiah 25, specifically in verse 6, and you can see more of a description of this feast that Isaiah is describing. He goes on in in chapter 9 and he says, The yoke of burden and the rod of of oppression have been broken. So, like Pastor said here uh, just a few minutes ago while we were taking the Lord's Supper, our enemy ultimately was not the Assyrian army of Isaiah's day. Our enemy was not the Babylonian army that was coming in Isaiah's day. God's people's enemy was not the Roman Empire that crucified Christ. Our enemy isn't any government or regime of this world. In fact, I would like to add to that, not only are they not our enemy, the enemy that is being talked about, when when we get to God's point of view, we are on the same team as the Assyrians. We are on the same team as the Babylonians. We're on the same team as the Romans who crucified Jesus. Do you know the Romans crucified him? The Jews crucified him. And you crucified him. You crucified him. Your sin crucified your Jesus. We were all on the same team. Humanity was stuck. Our oppressor is not of flesh and blood. Satan, the wicked and terrible dragon, along with his cohorts, sin and death, those are our enemies. These are our true oppressors, but their yoke has been born and broken. Jesus bore that yoke and broke that yoke. Our heavy chains of sin have been shattered. Death has, listen to me, Cindy, Cindy, given a death sentence by doctors, your lungs won't last two years. Death cannot win. Death has lost because in death, in dying, we live. Paul says to die is gain. Whether we are awake or whether we are asleep, we live. Why? Because our enemy has been conquered. Because death, our last enemy, has been mortally wounded. He is surely dying. 
Every warrior's boot and bloody garment will be burned up. There has been a reordering, an end to war. Now comes the reconstruction. A light to dispel the darkness. Isaiah is describing here in chapter 9 the reign of Christ. And, and it is on the very basis of this reordering that we are given the Great Commission. How many of you remember what the Great Commission is? You, if you grew up in church, you surely know this. What is the Great Commission? Go to the world and preach the word, preach the gospel, make disciples, baptize the nations. But did you know that the reason we are given the Great Commission, the reason we are given the Great Commission is because what Isaiah said is true? Listen to what Matthew 28 says. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. Go for that reason. Tell the world the war is over. Tell the world their king is dead. A new king reigns. Verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 9. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. This is the part of the scripture that goes on our Christmas cards. Why? Obviously because it's about Christmas time. It's about Christmas. It's about the night in Bethlehem when the Virgin Mary gave birth. Why wouldn't we put it on our Christmas cards? But for those Christians, for those who tend toward pessimism, and this is where I'm talking to us this morning, for those who tend toward pessimism, We've, we've got to be careful because this is where it starts to get hairy. If we hold a view, and this is our temptation as humans, our temptation is to hold a view of the world and of her future that is jaded and pessimistic, that is marked by death and sin more than it is marked by redemption and recreation. That's our temptation. We, we hold a view that is uh, jaded and pessimistic rather than enthusiastic and optimistic. And here in Isaiah, here in the Great Commission, is where a downcast theology, it, where a, a downtrodden, beat-down worldview becomes at best inconsistent. At best inconsistent. And not to mention, not only is it inconsistent, it's downright depressing. Go into all the world, Jesus says. But why? It's not like it's going to make a difference. What's the point? Can the world really be saved? What's the point? Can we really stop wars? What's the point? I want to make sure I'm being perfectly upfront here. I have an agenda this morning. I have an agenda. I want all of you to become more optimistic and enthusiastic. I want your outlook to be marked by joy and laughter and rejoicing. Martin Luther said, you have as much faith as you have laughter. Whew. How many of you does that scare? How, when was the last time uh, some of you have laughed? Really laughed. This Christ in all of life for all the world 
pessimistic people, jaded Christians take this nothing more, take this as nothing more than hyperbole. It, it's just a juiced up slogan. But we must take this literally. I want my family to be on mission such that, that we see even the so-called mundane and seemingly menial aspects of life through the scope of gospel. And therefore understand life and work and leisure, no matter the day or time or task, as profoundly unto the Lord. I want my family to be on mission such that no matter what we are doing, no matter what time of day it is, whether we are eating or sleeping or playing or praying, to be profoundly unto the Lord. Profoundly unto the Lord. I, I want my life, and I want this for you too, I want our lives to be blank checks in the hands of a God who can take a seed and make it a tree. Who can take a seed and make it a tree. I want, who, I want our lives to be blank checks in the hands of a God who can take those lives lived in obscurity that are adorned by faithfulness in the menial and the mundane, and from it, from that life, from that seed, produce a harvest beyond comprehension toward his end of global fame and glory and, king, and kingdom increase. That's why we are here. Have you ever thought about it? We are saved, right? If we're Christians, why don't we just lay down in the middle of the road? And go to heaven with Jesus. Why hasn't he just taken us out of here? We're saved now. We are here to be seeds in the ground. We are here to grow up into a tree. We are here. Our lives are here so that they may adorn the gospel and bring fame and glory to our Jesus. That's why you're here. That's why we don't lay down in the middle of the road to get to heaven. And this starts with a child born. A son that is given. Given. Isaiah is talking about the gospel. We, we this morning, are talking about grace. We're talking about the gift the gift, a child, a son. We are talking about God himself, love and truth, flesh and bone. Love and truth, flesh and bone. Theologians call this the incarnation. This is a, it's what, when you hear that word, that's what it means. Jesus, God, became a man, the incarnation. Theologians call that the incarnation. My children know it as Christmas. The world knows it as Christmas. And by the way, that is why they're terrified of the word Christmas. Because they know probably better than some of, some of us Christians of what that word means. They know the danger in just using it on a display of Chocolate chip cookies. That's dangerous. Don't put it there. We don't want our display to communicate Christ the King is reigning on the throne. And if we say Merry Christmas, that's exactly what we're saying. They probably don't say that in their ad meetings, but they might as well be. They're afraid. And we shouldn't be. The government shall be upon his shoulder. In other words, this son is going to be a king. He is going to govern. But what government are we talking about? Are we talking about the Obama administration? Are we talking about first century Roman Empire? When and where is this government, this son, 
going to rule? Where's the government? When is the government? Believe it or not, Jesus himself tells us the answer to this question. Believe it or not. And we read it already, Matthew 28, 18. Jesus, giving us the Great Commission, says this. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This is no more Joseph second in command. This is Jesus who owns, who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. So what, where, and when are all answered in this statement of Jesus? All three. What, where, and when. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given. Is not simply some earthly government, and this is not only a far-off heavenly government. Okay, let me say that again. This is not just an earthly government. This is not just some far-off heavenly government. This is all authority in heaven and on earth. This is a new kingdom, a kingdom that encompasses heaven and earth made new. A kingdom won by costly conquest at a tree that now affords all authority to the son who was given. He won. He won. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God himself, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. This child will save us from our sin and be a comfort to the afflicted. He is very God of very God. He is a father who takes care of his children. He is prince of a government that brings with it peace. Why? Because he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. Has peace come? Yes, Jesus has come. Ephesians 2.14 says that. But, but how exactly will this peace manifest in the world? What will this government be like? For the answer to that, I want us to think about why the Jews in Jesus' time assumed the Messiah would reign like fire on politics. Why the Jews in Jesus' time were expecting an iron fist to annihilate Romans. Those Jews knew Isaiah's prophecy. That's why. Those Jews were disappointed not because they did not know what the Messiah would actually do. Let me say that again. They were disappointed not because they did not know what Jesus was actually here on the earth to do. They were disappointed because they did not know who and what the real enemies were. They, they did not understand how their Messiah would do what was promised. They expected Battles and armies and swords and iron fist. Destruction of Romans. They weren't wrong about what Jesus would do. They, where they got it wrong was who the enemies were. Like I said, we were on the same page. We were on the same team as the Romans. And Jesus came and set us free from our enemy. He clenched an iron fist and destroyed the enemy just like Isaiah promised he would. He just did it differently than we thought and expected. Isaiah describes this government with explicit imagery and he does so in a few places. You can check it out later. Isaiah chapter 40 and Isaiah chapter 65. And another place he describes it is Isaiah chapter 11 verses 1 through 10. And this is our next text. 
So, um, before we go on to verse 7, here in chapter 9, we're going to look at what Isaiah has in mind and what historically God's people understood the Messiah to bring about. So, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. It's a little chunk, so bear with me. This is the word of the Lord. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. And faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together. And the little lion and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Descended from the eternal line of King David, the son of Jesse, Jesus is that shoot. He is that branch. He is the rightful heir to the eternal throne. And on his holy mountain, in his kingdom, the wolf and the lamb will dwell together. This past week, my children have been uh, discovering the Lion King. I love the movie too. And I'm like, you guys got to see this movie. So we've been watching The Lion King. So the whole time I'm reading that, I'm thinking of the opening scene, you know, and here's the little lion cub and all the animals together. You know, it's, it's really a pretty nice picture of what we're talking about. On, on this holy mountain, in this kingdom, the wolf and the lamb will lay down together. Lions will no longer be predators and calves will no longer be Pray, bears and lions will graze with cows. Nursing children will play with cobras and be as safe if they, as if they were playing with a teddy bear. We're talking about the extinction of danger, the extinction of destruction and decay and death. Once vicious predators will become docile, domesticated herbivores. Lions led by children through the park on a leash. Joshua got a milk cow, Daisy. And Marley um, was trying to feed Daisy and get ready to milk her one day. And me and the boys were out there um, watching and petting Daisy. Daisy's very, you know, very docile. And um, we were out there. And so I set Ephraim down. And he, he was, we were standing right in front of Daisy. And this, you know, Daisy's as sweet as can be, but... But when Ephraim sat down right in front of her, for some reason, I guess it was because it was like eye to eye, you know, like if I were to kneel down right in front, she kind of didn't like that. And so she just kind of went and pushed him over, you know. And so, you know, pick him up because if she would keep going, that would hurt. And Marley, you know, just kind of pulled her back. It wasn't like an intense deal, but Marley, when she pulled her back, Daisy stepped on her foot and broke like three toes. And, uh, and when I read this, I think about that. Ephraim could lead Daisy in the park. Not only Daisy, Ephraim could lead a lion on a leash through the park. That's what Isaiah is saying. Now, is he crazy? Is he serious? This is extreme language. And when we read this, we still have three options. Either Isaiah was confused, he was lying to us, 
or he is correct. And Christians, by the way, only have one option. Isaiah is correct. Now, there are disagreements about what it all means, and I don't want to get into the disagreements. I don't want to get into that. I simply want to ask one question. This question, when shall these things be? You're Mary and Joseph. You're sitting there. You're pregnant. Halfway through this thing, you know, the angels come. You know it's a miraculous conception there's been nothing going on between you and Joseph and you're sitting in your house and you're reading Isaiah chapter 9 and you're reading Isaiah chapter 11 and you know the Messiah is in your womb when shall these things be you've got to ask yourself the question Paul took Isaiah seriously and further than just taking him seriously, Paul in the Bible tells us when this ridiculous prophecy takes place. In Romans 15, 12. Let me turn there and read it to you. Write it down. You, uh, I, I don't I don't have any uh, I'm not coming up here in, with fa- false pretenses that I expect all of all of you or everybody or anybody for that matter to to listen to what I say and think oh yeah he, he must be telling me the truth he's standing up on that stage I don't have any false pretenses about that. What I want you to do, what I want to do is point you to the Bible where you know it is the truth. Let my words fall. Let them go. It doesn't matter. Go to the scriptures and, and look for yourself. Paul Romans 15, he says, starting in verse 8, he says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, the promises given to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, that in, in them the families of the earth would be blessed, that their offspring would outnumber the stars in the sky. If you haven't checked on what the latest count of, it's kind of a big number their offspring would outnumber them. He goes on, he says, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, and he quotes an Old Testament scripture. And again, in verse 10, he says, and again it is said, and he quotes another Old Testament scripture. And then in verse 12, he says, and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. That's Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. And Paul says, as it is written, as Isaiah wrote it, that's why, I'm preaching to the Gentiles because the light has come not to shine in one small corner of our pane glass window. The light has come that is unconstrainable. The light has come that is not consigned to one ethnicity or to one race or to one nation or one people group. The light has come for all peoples, for every tribe and for every tongue, for every nation. The light has come. Paul points to Isaiah. And says, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing because that day is now. You Jews who want to stop me, no. Isaiah said, this day is the day to do what I'm doing. And so I'm doing it. He says, these prophecies have been confirmed in order that the Gentiles and the nations, not just the Jews, might glorify God for his mercy. So Isaiah 11.10 says, in that day... In that day, in the day of righteous judgment, in the day that predators become herbivores, in the day that the root of Jesse will stand as an ensign of the peoples and the nations will hope in this root that is Christ the Lord. Isaiah says, in that day, Paul will do what he does. Now we have to ask ourselves whether or not Paul was serious or was he crazy. Paul, 
news for you. I know you've been gone for a while now, but it's 2013 and I'm still not going to let my children play with the cobra. Any of you who will send your child out to the cobra patch, I'm going to have to uh, call CPS on you. I'm sorry. It's not happening. We're not letting our children play with, I, I won't even put Ephraim down with Daisy anymore. You know, he could get hurt. There's danger here. Some people are not here this morning. Why? Because there's danger here with this magic hardened water on roads. Danger is still real. And yet Isaiah says, in that day, Paul does what he does. So Paul, um, I think you might have been confused. Isaiah was probably talking about, you know, some heavenly reality in the future. And, I, and listen, I admit to you freely that if we don't take all of what the scriptures say into account, a condescending attitude toward Paul's interpretation is extremely easy to come by. If we don't let Jesus inform us what the kingdom of heaven is like, we will most assuredly lose heart and become jaded hard and hard-hearted. So let's go back to Isaiah 9 now. Isaiah 9. And let's let Isaiah inform us how this is going to happen. If you don't have to be stuck thinking Paul was delusional. You don't have to be stuck thinking there's a a mistake in the word of God. You don't have to become obstinate towards God's word just because we don't let our kids play with cobras or lions. Isaiah 9-6 is easy. It's describing the birth of Jesus some 2,000 years ago. So then what about verse 7? When shall these things be? That's the question. When shall these things be? Verse 7. Some Christians assume verse 7 is describing a far-off reality as, as if there's a break in the, in the prophetic fulfillment between 6 and 7. So 6, a child is born, a son is born. Well, that's Jesus being born. That's why we put the verse on our Christmas cards. And now 7, well, we're still waiting for that. You know, seven, 6 is here. That happened 2,000 years ago. 7 will maybe come one day. Listen. Pay close attention to what, what Isaiah says here. Listen, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now seven, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So notice a few things in particular. First, from this time forth and forevermore. He says, from this time forth and forever. The government will increase from the time the son is given forevermore. And then Isaiah describes the manifestation of this government. And he says, it's not instantaneous. It's gradual, unending Increase of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Now, this corresponds with, with a dream that another prophet interpreted, Daniel. Daniel interprets, uh, he, he's taken away captive to Babylon, just like all these other guys Isaiah included said would happen. Daniel's in Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream and Daniel interprets this dream and Nebuchadnezzar's dream is of a stone cut out without hands, a stone. And, and there's this statue of this giant statue that represents all these kingdoms in these different eras. Starting up here with like, I don't know, Medes and Persians or something like that and ending way down on the bottom with Romans. And Daniel says, uh, he interprets this dream and he says, this little stone that you saw cut without hands is going to crash into that statue and destroy it. It will become like dust and you won't even be able to see it anymore. And then Nebuchadnezzar sees that little stone, that stone cut without hands and that stone grows and it grows into a mountain and it takes over the entire earth. It covers the whole world. And 
Daniel is describing exactly what Isaiah is describing. A kingdom established that shall never be destroyed and a king that will reign forever. Think back to what the author of Hebrews said. We are thankful because we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, never be destroyed. And a king that will reign forever. This, the way this kingdom is manifest should be obvious to us by simply by the way Jesus came into the world. So as the song we sing this morning says, we thought you'd come with a crown of gold, a string of pearls, a cashmere robe. We thought you'd clench an iron fist and rain like fire on the politics. But without a sword, no armored guard, common born in a mother's arms, our king our king, our presidents in America get security for life. The king of the world, who while he was a baby, by the way, had an assassination attempt on his life that ended with the slaughter of infants. Our baby born to a young mother and a young father, no sword, no armored guard. A baby? Is this a joke? Is this serious? This is our Messiah? Yes. How fitting. We of all people should see it was our Lord himself who taught us what the kingdom was like with parable after parable illustrating this reality that the kingdom would come gradually and increase supremely. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that doesn't appear as a tree overnight. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven permeating the world. And then Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like hidden treasure. Like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value sells everything so he can buy it. The point is the kingdom of heaven isn't coming like rapid dominance. Shock and awe. Do you remember watching that on TV? Shock and awe. Shock and all, you know, after the World Trade Centers were uh, destroyed and our response was shock and awe. That's not what our kingdom is coming like. It's not rapid dominance. It comes gradually without observation, hidden to those without faith. The author of Hebrews sees that we would have a hard time waiting. When, when we found out we were pregnant, EJ and I, we had to wait. And we finally get to meet Gideon. And even now, we have to wait to really get to know him. All he does now is sleep and cry and poop and eat. He doesn't really have too much of a personality. He's pretty laid back, but... We, but we're still waiting. We're still waiting to see the manifestation of this little person, of this little man, what he's going to be like. The author of Hebrews knew we, have, we people have a hard time waiting. And so he says this. He, he knows we have a hard time walking by faith instead of walking by sight. And so this is what the author of Hebrews exhorts us with. He says, Now in putting everything in subjection to Christ, he left nothing outside his control. And at present, we don't see everything in subjection to him, but we see him. We don't yet see lions and bears grazing in the field we don't yet see cobras that we'd let our kids play with, but we see our King Jesus who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth and who is seated at the right hand of the Father, the Ancient of Days. Death, the last enemy, is not yet put away, but death has been defanged. Death has lost its sting, the Bible says, and it has been mortally wounded and it is surely dying. And we know that, why? Because we see Christ raised from the dead. 
We see him and we know his kingdom is here and increasing. We see him and so we know that his gospel will conquer because he already has. We see him born as a baby as one of us in whose face is glory. Isaiah saw glory. Mary and Joseph saw glory. Paul saw glory. Do we see glory? Isaiah was serious. Paul was serious. They possessed rock-solid confidence about what was and what was coming. And they were not swayed by what they saw or what they didn't see. They refused to doubt the promise. Their light could not be snuffed out. Even when faced with their own hellish deaths, they enthusiastically believed and lived and died accordingly. Do you, will, will you die and live accordingly? Find out. Isaiah looked to Christ to see the future. Likewise, we look to Christ to see the future. Isaiah relied on the word of God to know what was coming. We too rely on the word of God to know not just what is to come, but what has already come and what has already been accomplished. So Isaiah was looking forward to see Christ. We are looking behind to see him, to see the cross, to see him hanging there, proclaim it is finished to see the tomb that was empty on Sunday morning to see the son of man ascend to the ancient of days let us pray heavenly father we ask that you would make us more optimistic we ask that you establish these promises in our hearts as you have established your kingdom on the earth. Those who are having a hard time believing, you have given us sufficient reason for our outlook to be optimistic and enthusiastic. Lord, remind, remind us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. We believe God, so would you help our unbelief? For Christ's sake, we ask these things. Amen. So the charge this morning is this. Be merry and be bright. Be Christmas lights glowing in the dark. Your life. Be optimistic. Be enthusiastic. And if you aren't these things, then Search the scripture and see for yourself if you should be. Read Isaiah and take him seriously. Pray, repent, and rejoice. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen.